Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 99,000 tiny steps. So I'm sitting here in a damp bathing suit. It's super muggy outside. I just mowed the lawn as workout number one for today, which as I record this is July 13th. So lucky 13, I guess, makes me think of Molly. So 99 episodes. Next week will be 100, episode 100. And that will be a bit of a special episode in the sense that I'm going to be talking I'll be talking about Molly, so that's not super different, but there's some pretty wonderful things coming up in regard to her foundation and the elements of Molly we try to keep alive and how we try to honor her short little life. And then I'll be having some more guests. I hope that you all listened to Libby. That was an interesting process. When I listen to podcasts and people have guests on, I'm interested in listening to the guest and I get irritated when the host does too much talking. So when I listened to my interview, oh my God, All I could say was Barbara, shut (laughs) up. So I must have reached out to my editor like five or six times and said, okay, I've listened again. Can you just cut that whole chunk out? Okay, I listened again. That's just boring. It was such a good lesson in how to conduct the podcast interview more effectively and keeping it interesting and relevant. The other thing I'm not always good at, and you'd think I would be with all the interviews I've given or the things I've recorded, is to give background to a question. So... You know, I asked Libby some questions about things. Why do you end your podcast the way you do? Without saying, hey, Libby, I noticed you end your podcast like this. Why do you do that? So somebody listening wouldn't know how she ends her podcast. So maybe that will make you listen to find out what I was talking about. But it was such a wonderful learning process. And as with anything, I think that's important. So Libby, thank you for being my crash test dummy. Yes, number one. Because I'm really good at the guest thing, I'll have you back. We can try again. I think it was good. And I just, I just love Libby. And I love learning from people that you don't think you necessarily can learn from. What am I talking about today? Well, a couple of things. So one big piece of my life story that I haven't gone into in depth, dedicated a season to, is my addiction. And so I've talked a lot about alcohol and alcoholics anonymous, but addictive personalities are an incredible sign of, of a trauma response. So people who are addicts tend to be that way because of a traumatic incident in their lives. Having said that, there are plenty, especially alcohol, plenty of alcoholics who had seemingly wonderful lives with no major trauma at all and become addicted to drugs and alcohol. So for those of you that don't know, and probably most of you do, there's the physical addiction and the emotional addiction. And depending on what way you get addicted first, can sort of dictate the nature of your addiction and how hard it is to quit. Physical addiction, and not all drugs are physically addicting, although your body does get used to it. So it's sort of a weird delineation. But physical addiction means your body itself, regardless of what you think, needs the drug again. And if you don't take it, you can get very sick. That's a physical addiction. So some examples that aren't opiates are cortical steroids. So for example, when you take prednisone as an anti-inflammatory, you typically go on a taper. You take a whole bunch, and then each day you take a little less. And that's because prednisone jumps in and takes over for your body. So your body is addicted to it in the sense that it is now doing a job, a function that the body used to do. And if you just cut it cold turkey, your body 
doesn't jump back in and continue doing what it was supposed to do before the prednisone. Hope that makes sense. So a prednisone taper is very common. You take 10 milligrams and then eight milligrams and then six milligrams and then four milligrams. And you never just cold turkey that prednisone. You don't ever just not taper it. And that's, that's an example of a physical addiction. And then, so for example, alcohol's physical addiction is that when you drink alcohol, it goes right to your brain. Alcohol is in blood and water. It's in the water in your body. It goes everywhere. Alcohol goes to every cell in your body. The only part of your body that can actually filter alcohol with any success is breast milk. Isn't that amazing? The boobs, no. So alcohol goes right to your brain. Your brain sits in water. So now your brain is sitting in beer or a vodka tonic or a margarita or whatever it is you're drinking. And you have all these receptors in your brain that are serotonin receptors. And serotonin makes you happy. So those go, oh my gosh, you're surrounded by beer. We don't need serotonin. They all close off. So think of a bunch of little garden hoses and your brain is full of little holes that those garden hoses attach to. That's serotonin. So when those close up, the little hoses have no place to go. And so they lay dormant. So now your body is not producing serotonin because it doesn't need to, because it's full of beer. <laughs> your brain is floating in it. So then the beer goes away. These closed off serotonin receptors that normally would be sending serotonin through to your body, regulating your mood, keeping you happy. Not even happy, just keeping you balanced. So your body has to go, okay, wait, that wasn't right. Okay, we have to reopen these serotonin receptors and that take a while. From one night of drinking, and not even end drinking, two or three nights, two or three drinks over a course of a few hours, it takes your body about two weeks to get back to normal serotonin receptor wise. That's one night, a couple of drinks. Most people who involve alcohol in their life drink it every day. So what happens is you adapt to a new reality. You adapt to a reality that is a bit depressed. You don't even know it's depressed. You just know around about five o'clock, your body starts joseph for that drink. And that's because this is the time that your brain needs the influx. Your brain needs the beer or the wine or whatever it is that you drink so that it can float around in that happy juice and regulate itself again. Alcohol is incredibly addictive in that regard. So it's both physically and emotionally addictive. I have danced the alcohol dance my whole life. The first time I ever drank a beer was with Anna Fine. I love you, Anna, in heaven. And we were in the attic at my house and we each had a Michelob light and we drank them down. I right away loved how it made me feel because it took away all my anxiety. Now, at that time, I was, you know, 13 years old. I was right around the last time that I was sexually abused. So I was living that anxiety. And I remember the alcohol just took it away. And I felt so much better. And so, not surprisingly, I became somebody that couldn't wait for the weekend to come so I could find friends that would be partying. And one of the first questions I would ask when I met someone new was, do you party? Do you party? And if they said no, then it wasn't that I didn't want them to, you know, be my friend. I just was bummed that they didn't party. And I knew that that would be somebody that I would hang out with on the weekends. I also know that all through high school, when the weekend came, if we tried to buy beer or wanted to drink and we couldn't, we all felt like our whole night was ruined. It was very hard for us to just brush it off and go do something else, or at least it was for me. I also know that the adults in my life when I was in high school were concerned about how I drank. I was a binge drinker. I was a blackout drinker. I drank until I vomited. I would wake up in the morning and not remember 90% of what had happened the night before. I was just a classic, classic trauma victim drinker. I could not drink though when track season came and we signed a contract saying we wouldn't make any rules, one of which was underage drinking. 
I had no trouble not drinking during track season. And sometimes I feel incredibly lucky about that because I could stop when I needed to stop. Sadly, what that told me was that I'm in control, that, that I control the alcohol. And now, 42 years later, I still live that same reality. I can quit anytime I want. Right now I'm quitting. I'm in the middle of a quit. And so the reason this is sort of on my mind are two external things that have happened in the last couple of days. I had my physical this morning. So I told my doctor all about 75 hard that I'm doing and the get better girl in my diet. And that part of it was abstaining from alcohol. And so he asked me, how is that going? And I said, you know, it's fine. When I set my mind to something like this, I don't have trouble. I'll stick to it because I don't want to fail. I'm very, very achievement oriented and goal oriented. I have that elite athlete ego where I want to win the prize. And so am I worried that I will goof up and drink? No. Is it a possibility? Of course, it's a possibility. <laughs> it's me, Barb. <laughs> we had a conversation and I said to him, and a part of me was really thinking that I should get back into the AA lifestyle, the AA idea of a sober lifestyle, because truly that's the best way to abstain one day at a time for the rest of your life. And I like the mindset of it, the one day at a time mindset. 75 hard is very much one day at a time. You never fail at day one. So every day is day one. Because if you do fail, it isn't day one. <laughs> so that conversation was just in my mind. But really what got me thinking about talking about addiction on a much deeper level, while I'm not quite ready to be 100% open about my addiction story, specifically post Molly's death, I know that this time is coming. And I'm very, very in tune and keen to the stories of others. I'm on social media all the time. And I have several thousand Facebook friends. The Facebook algorithms different people cycle through. And I think Facebook listens to what you say or what you talk about. And then they put things on your page that match that. And so in my podcast and in everything, I often talk about my students. I talk about addiction and I talk about a thousand tiny steps. And so I saw a post, there's a former student and her name is Skylar. I remember her from years and years and years ago. I don't have specific memories about her, but she's someone I remember. We've been Facebook friends for a long time and she has had her battles with addiction. I don't know how old she is. I would have to say probably late 20s at the youngest, maybe early 30s. I'm not sure. But she is a very open about who she is, all of it. She lays herself out there, which I love because that's kind of what I do. So of course she opens herself up to criticism. And so being young and really, really in the beginning of her adult life, managing children and a fiance and her desire to be clean, she is clean right now. And she's not had an easy time getting there. So she shares everything and I always comment. I always support her. I always comment because she's just sharing outwardly what hundreds of thousands of people struggle with inwardly. So she's young. She's your sort of your classic, I would say, Gen Zer in many, many ways. She's been very, very, very open and honest about all of her choices, good choices and bad choices. She posts when she's happy and has a picture of herself smiling. She posts when she's upset and does a live while she's sobbing. She's just really, really out there. And she did a long, long post. And it brought me right back to the reason I call this podcast A Thousand Times Steps. So she posted a post that said, this is for anyone who doesn't get it. And I would love to take credit for this because this is exactly what I would talk about with my health two students around addiction, any kind of addiction, food, cutting, hair pulling, drinking, puking, snorting, smoking, whatever it was. You drank the same alcohol I drank. You smoked the same weed I smoked. You even tried the same line of white stuff someone put in front of you at a party. 
you were able to walk away and not take it to the extreme. Since I have the disease of addiction, I will spend the rest of my life fighting to stay clean. As children, we didn't decide we'd rather be an addict instead of a doctor. When was the last time you talked to a young girl who told you she couldn't wait to grow up so she could turn tricks to feed the insatiable hunger of her drug addiction? My best friend didn't tell me about exciting plans to become homeless. My other friend didn't blow out her candles as a child, wishing for a substance abuse disorder because she couldn't wait for the day her family wanted nothing to do with her. Nobody wants to have substance abuse disorder. Some of us just do. So please always remember, you made those same choices too. Happened to me and not you. If you still have doubts, you can take those up with the Centers for Disease Control of the United States Surgeon General. They have classified addiction as a disease. Please be kind. That's a pretty powerful post. I get teary-eyed. There are some people that would say, oh, it's just using it in your, you know, it's not a disease, blah, blah, blah. Posts like that are very, very clear and succinct and focused. What I liked about that post was the taking yourself back to childhood when you close your eyes and blow out your candles and you make a wish. And that was the beginning of my lesson on thousand tiny steps. Nobody wakes up and says, I think I'm going to run over somebody drunk with my car and kill them. That's what I'll do today. No, 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 no. Nobody says those things. The whole reason I started this podcast in the first place was to trace my thousand tiny steps backwards so I could see if I could find the beginning of the end of Molly. And I believe that I have in many ways found those first few steps that set the ball in motion that led to Molly dying in the way she died at the time she died where she died and how she died. Could I have changed it? Absolutely. We can change everything in our life. We could go back and take one different left turn or right turn and things could be very different. What I liked about her post was to remind us that all of us closed our eyes and blew out our candles and wished for wonderful things. And some of us got them and some of us didn't. So what does this have to do with my addiction? Well, in watching her come clean with whatever it was she was addicted to, she has traveled a much more difficult road a much more intensive stay likely in rehab, although I don't know for sure. She has a lot of doctor intervention and medical intervention, which I haven't needed to have. I believe she probably has some court issues that I didn't have. She is at a place where she still feels the grip of that addiction. And rather than succumb to it, she puts it out there. Her posts are all over the place and it's refreshing and it's wonderful because she's not hiding out someplace. She isn't invisible. She's making herself seen. And it gives me a lot of hope and a lot of confidence and reassurance that I'm doing the right thing by making myself seen. If you were to look at her, you wouldn't think of her as, it doesn't surprise me that she's had a drug addiction issue. You can tell she's had a hard time. She's beautiful and she makes up her face and she has a rough edge to her. She isn't afraid to show herself, want herself, and acknowledge her beauty. She's also not afraid to sob into the screen and show her you know, ugly cry face and ask for help either. She is unabashedly authentic. It's hard for people. I do feel sometimes in our society, and this is not an example of Skylar right now, that there are people who insist that others agree with them when they share themselves. There are people in the addiction world. There are people in the Christian world or the religious world. There are people in the non-religious world, the atheist world. There are people in the political world who not only want to share themselves openly, but want to make you think the way they think. And there's nothing about Skylar that tells you to think the way she thinks. All she asks is that you understand or seek to understand or accept 
the way that she thinks. And I've just been incredibly, incredibly inspired by her. So what does this have to do with me? Well, if you were to look at me, I don't think the first thing that would pop into your mind is, oh, there's a drug addict, because I don't have that look, right? First of all, I'm almost 60 years old, you know, TikTok, TikTok, four more days from this, from when you're hearing this. I've had a very long professional life. I work with children. I have children. I own a home. I live in a neighborhood that's nice, big houses. Although big houses don't mean there aren't people with addictions as I look out my window. We make a lot of judgments by what we see, what our eyes tell us. And that's logical. Our eyes are our first mechanism for both inquiry and knowledge and self-defense. We have to be careful. We have to focus and pay attention to all of these things. But our eyes can also lead us to assumptions, right? So you look at Skylar and her sort of badass motorcycle driving. I don't know. (laughs) I love you, Skylar. You're perfect just the way you are. You may look at me, who's slowly becoming your classic senior citizen. And you wouldn't make assumptions. You wouldn't make the same assumptions about us. But Skylar and I are more alike than the world could ever imagine. In my life with addiction, I've often been very clear about my use of cocaine when I was in college. It was the 80s and everybody, everybody started cocaine. You would go to a party and there would be a pile of it on a coffee table. That's how easy it was to come by. It wasn't ridiculously expensive. It was just a whole different beast. People did it. People did it all the time. And I remember being honest in my health classes and saying to my students, that's the drug that got me sober up. It wasn't the alcohol, it was the Coke. And it was. One of my last times using it was one of my last weekends in Boston. It was the last weekend before I was fully moved home and moved back here and never moved back to Boston again. And I was at a wedding and some of the people at the wedding, we just did all day long, line after line after line. After a while, it stops feeling good. And it just feels like I have to have more, I have to have more. And then you do more and the more doesn't make you feel better, but it doesn't take away the need for more. And any of you that have ever been addicted to anything know exactly what I'm talking about. Your body craves it, you use it, you don't get the relief from it anymore. It's a horrible, horrible way to feel. And I remember in the days following that, just deciding I can't do this anymore. I'm going to lose everything. And that's the drug that brought me to my knees. And I often said to my students, had I not just cut ties and pulled a major geographical cure and left all of my friends and the life I had known for eight years and moved back home, here I am all these years later. I ostensibly moved home for one year and I never, I never left, which I go back and forth on what might've been better. At any rate, that was an incredibly difficult decision for me, but I was fine. I did it. I went to one AA meeting a week, sometimes two. That was it. My desire and ability to quit is not a problem. I didn't have withdrawals from the cocaine because I didn't take enough to need to. I share all this because as somebody that has lived in a life of sexual abuse, and then here's the other piece. I had a really good therapist right now. So the reason I'm sharing this is my drug addiction and all of my drug use is logical for my past. Now let me get to my therapist. So I have this online mindset coach who's more like a therapist than a mindset coach. She's both. She has a background in psychotherapy, so it's logical. But we're really analyzing the effects of, of abuse on children. And so sexual abuse is tricky because sometimes children are abused in horrific ways where they hurt, where their bodies are ravaged, where they bleed, where they're beaten or hurt or violated with things that cause them pain. That never happened to me. My abuse was never painful. It never felt painful or bad, which is a difficult thing to process. 
Okay, I know this is bad, but it doesn't hurt. Actually doesn't always even feel all that bad. Oh my God, this is disgusting. That means I like it. All of that confusion in the mind of a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old never goes away. Sex and our sexual desires and how sex makes us feel is innate. Children know it's wrong. Children know. I remember taking Gracie to the doctors and, and the doctor opened her diaper and looked down and she frowned at him and got very upset. She was a baby. No one had ever hurt her, but she didn't like the fact that somebody she didn't know was looking in her diaper. We are hardwired to know that this isn't a normal part of life. And so when it's violated at a young age like that, it messes up the wiring in the brain. And it's not like talk therapy can fix that because anything that triggers the flow of neurological impulses, you know, the, the thoughts that go down those neuropathways, the neuropathway is there. You can't unpathway it. You have to create new pathways that become stronger. So is it easier for somebody that was violated in a painful way to recover? No, of course not. They have a whole different path of recovery. They become addicts just as much. But they can always associate bad, evil, pain, awful with their abuse. I don't associate evil and pain in that way because it, it didn't hurt me. I wasn't insulted. I wasn't vilified. It was confusing and terrifying. So what does that have to do with addiction? Always what we strive for as children like this is to feel better for all the internal voices in our head to stop. And so for me, it was alcohol that did that. Of course, alcohol then takes away decision-making <laughs> skills and it takes away logical thinking and it takes away coordination and it takes away memory and it takes away inhibitions. So, you know, does it fix things? No, it might take away feeling bad, but it creates a whole new host of problems that will not again make you feel bad. So in my life, all through my 20s, moved home in my mid-20s, joined AA and spent about seven years not drinking. I know I've talked about this before, but it's not surprising that when my life has become unmanageable, that I turn to a quick comfort. And a quick comfort can be alcohol. A quick comfort can be a relationship that's outside of my day-to-day -day life that gives me an escape. I just am learning so much about why my brain does what it does. And when I watch people like Skylar, whose addiction became the crippling piece that took her down. You know, she has all her children. It's a child loss that took her down. With the addiction itself, I think my addiction has caused a lot of the things that happened in my life, a lot of the choices I made. I think my child abuse continues to dictate who I choose to be my friends and why I choose them. I think it's a vicious circle. The naysayers and the critics and the non-addicts who have no idea what this life is like, but certainly like to criticize or give their opinion on it, would say that I use it as an excuse to make poor choices. Well, okay, you can think that. I don't think in all of my podcast episodes that I've ever excused a mistake or a bad choice. I think I've owned them. I have no choice but to own them. They were mine. As I process with Carolina, all of the mental ways my mind works and all of the things it causes me to do as I read a post as heartfelt as Skylar's, as unbelievably as spot on as Skylar's, around, we didn't choose this. We didn't wish for this when we blew out our birthday candles. We wished for the good things like everyone else. And we took the first sip or the first puff or the first drag or the first injection or the first pill, whatever it was, we took it. And it took us down a pathway that is very, very difficult to recover from, get off of. When I had to sober up, so to speak, to have Jack, when Molly died, along with the alcohol and the addiction piece that I've not yet been open about, 
think it might be very much the topic of my of my next book. But I drank like a fish. I didn't care. Is people said I think you're drinking a lot. I just said, yeah, I am. I am a dead kid. Shut up. And I also took, you know, a host of antipsychotic meds that kept me from being anxious, from staying awake, from falling asleep, from crying, from panicking, from killing myself. And then I had the nerve condition. So I had all the anti-seizure meds and the nerve block, gabapentin, which is used for psychological issues as well. Piles and piles of drugs. So no, I was not in some dark alley snorting coke. I wasn't cooking it and smoking it in a bank somewhere. I wasn't buying fentanyl on the street. I wasn't doing any of those things. But I was taking those very drugs. The drugs that people use, opioids, are the basis of pain relievers and psychological drugs. The addiction piece is identical. Mine were prescribed. And if I ran out ahead of time, I had to wait. Can't resell your prescription beforehand. So even if I was super anxious, I couldn't take an extra pill because I wouldn't make it to my next prescription. I have said many, many times the respect I have for addicts that come clean because it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I remember I had just started spiritual mentoring with Karen Kenny when I began this process. And we talk a lot about cleansing purifying the spirit before you start to fix it, to change it, right? You want to blow glass, right? You melt it, hot fire until it's soft and malleable and you can form it into these beautiful things. But that flame is hot, right? The flame is hot. You know, to make a diamond a beautiful diamond, it's all this friction, friction, friction against the stone to make it sparkle and shine like it does. That's a painful process. So the road to becoming that sparkly diamond starts with, with a very difficult, dark, painful life of friction. And so I started a spiritual mentoring and now it's the time. I had to fix myself somehow. And I needed to follow through on the stream. And I spent those four months day by day, cutting down the pills, cutting down the pills, cutting down the pills. One of my strongest memories of that is a day that I was going up the stairs and I just, I had to hold the railing. I felt like I was next to myself. My voice echoed in my head. And I remember just looking at Kenny and saying, I just can't wait until I feel normal again. I don't, I don't even know what that feels like. I don't even remember what it feels like to just feel normal. Like, here's my body. I'm in my body. I'm seeing what's in front of me. My balance is fine. My thoughts are regular. I couldn't even wrap my head around what that would feel like. And I watched some of Skylar's videos. She had one on recently where she was just having one of those days and I could just relate. It was me on the stairs, you know, trying so hard to feel okay. In the 75 hard, the little voice in your head that tells you to do bad things is called your bitch voice. I don't know that I necessarily like it, but why not? I think of Animal House with a little devil and a little angel on either side of the character's head. Red, do it. Don't do it. The good witch is the bad witch, right? It's at those times that you think back to what it would taste like to just down a shot of vodka or snort a line of Coke or take a big puff of weed or take a pill, you know, take a Xanax or whatever it would be. Those are incredibly difficult times, but it's the purification process, I think. When you come out of it, when you're truly no longer addicted and have any physical ramifications from that addiction, when your emotional triggers no longer send you immediately back into, I need to get high right now, I need to get drunk right now, then you've turned a huge corner and you've reached a level, I use the word purity, and I don't mean without sin. I just mean purity like crystal clear water, where you can see the bottom of a lake that's 30 feet deep, that clear, clear, beautiful, when the sky is blue and there's no moisture in the air, so it's this clear, crisp, like on a fall day when that air is just so clear. It takes a while to get there. And there's a lot of judgment around that process. I'm quite sure Skylar receives her fair share of judgment. 
when I read the comments on her posts, and sometimes when I read the comments on my posts, people love to be helpful. And oftentimes they give advice that makes no sense. Should they stop doing it? No, I don't think so. I think we're all in the, in the learning process. But, but I know sometimes people will say things to me and I'll just get angry. Like, how could you think that was a helpful thing to say? Well, because where that person is, it was a helpful thing to say. Where am I now? Why am I talking about this now? Because I'm in this 75 hard. I'm in this 90 days of following a really rigid diet. And there's a huge part of me that doesn't want to be a sober person. There's a huge part of me that wants to still be able to have a drink or two a night because I like how they taste and I like how they make me feel. But I also know that that Barbara walks a slippery slope. I straddle that picket fence. I use that analogy all the time. And do I want to live my life <laughs> with a picket fence between my legs? <laughs> I don't think so. But it's one of those things where you have to put enough days of sober living behind you to feel okay with it. And it's just such a difficult way to live sometimes. It really is just such a difficult way to live. I use the same thing with some of my relationships. Another piece of my healing right now with Carolina isn't just the addiction piece. It's who do I choose as my friends? And so she asked me a couple of weeks ago to make a list of everyone in my life that I thought might be a narcissist or have narcissistic personality disorder or have narcissistic tendencies. And she had me look at three ways that I would discern this. A, people who ask me for things all the time and would up the ante every time they asked. Two, people that just didn't treat me well, you know, people that treat me poorly, but I didn't dismiss from my life. And then three, people that I craved approval from. Because oftentimes people like me, trauma survivors, child abuse survivors, look for approval from the very people that will never give it to them. Because for us, a lot of our addiction, a lot of our self-destructive behavior is done to prove to ourselves that we suck. Everybody's right. I'm a bad person. It was all my fault. I just suck. I'll just keep drinking. Ah, I'm never going to do Molly B Foundation. Not never going to happen anyway. I suck. That is something that I do. And so I made this list. And at first it was, you know, I'm, I'm, it was hard for me. So I had five or six people on there. Some of the logical ones that you all probably know, those who know me. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. People just started coming out of the woodwork. Family members, distant family members, close family members, neighbors, friends, former friends, people that I've just met, people that I work with. Oh my gosh, it was, the list just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. So two things came to mind for me. We overuse the word narcissist, which I think we do. But I also know that under the umbrella of narcissism, which is just somebody being self-centered, is sociopathic behavior, manipulative behavior, abusive behavior, psychopathic behavior. All of those things fall under the umbrella of narcissism, people who are very self-absorbed. There are those who would say, I have narcissistic tendencies, that it's all about me. I told a story once about my friend Jack years ago, and he said I was the most selfish person he knew because I wouldn't make time to spend with him. And I'm like, but I spend all my time doing things for other people. And I think he was mad that all those other people were more important to me than him. But I think about it all the time. And I brought this up to Carolina. There are a couple of narcissists in my life that would point the finger and say, I'm the narcissist. And she said two things. One, that's what people with narcissistic tendencies do. They blame, shift, and project. She said, you don't ever blame, shift, or project. You own things you shouldn't own. And number two, people like me often feel that way about ourselves. That, oh, I'm thinking about myself, so I must be a narcissist. So we went through my list. And I got teary-eyed because I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me that I just choose people that, that are going to fuck me over? Like I do it. And she said that the piece for me was that I, I often chose people that needed help that I could help. 
And when I look at the two or three people in my life that truly hurt me the most, my initial reason for befriending them was to help them, to help them fit in, to help them get their kids in their house back, to help them save their charter schools. And ultimately, these people are not helpable and don't really want help. What they want is to suck people like me in and then, you know, the rest is history. So that was an incredible realization for me. And it's a huge piece of my entire life. I shared a story about one of my coaches that I had who would fall under this narcissistic place. And we were sitting on a bench and I, you know, had shown up to practice drunk again or whatever it was. I was a disastrous mess. And he just said, let it go. You're never going to be better than a B-level runner. That's all you are. Let it go. And so I did. He proved me right. I suck. Why am I trying? Why am I doing this? That was the summer before I really upped my drug use and then quit running for Nike and quit being competitive and moved home. I just believed him. When really what a coach should have said is, no, you are in a bad place right now. Let's get there. You have to commit this time. You have to commit. If he said, go to rehab for six months, I would have gone. I would have done whatever he said. And what he said was, you're never going to be any good. I look at that now, but I can take that incident and I remember the bench. I remember the weather. I remember all of it. But I take that incident and I can, I can replicate it in several different scenarios with other people in my life that I loved deeply and, and had feelings for. So there's that piece of it. So my assignment this week is to make a list of people who are not that way. Who are the people in my life that are always there for me? It's going to be a much shorter list <laughs> because those aren't the people that, I, that I'm drawn to. When I look at really good relationships that I've had with people that, whether or not they are helpful in my life, truly want to help me and are motivated by being a support for me and helping me. And those aren't people that I stay with. They aren't people I keep in my life. They aren't people that are in my life closely. I quickly jump on the bandwagon and help someone that's going to hurt me. What is that, right? So what does this have to do with addiction? It's the same addictive behavior. I'm addicted to the cycle of, oh, here's someone who needs me. Oh, here's how I can help them. Oh, let me make them my whole life. Oh, now they're taking advantage of me, but that's okay because they love me. Oh, I disagree with them and now we have a problem. Oh, they've disowned me and invisibled me and I'm no longer on their social media and they don't talk to me anymore. It's this cycle. It's this repeating cycle, just like use of alcohol or drugs is. So all of this is coming up in all of the areas of my life, my social media scrolling, my podcasting, writing my book, doing the 75 hard and get better girl health program, going to my physical, having online therapy, this constant, constant journey for me, this constant climb up a beautiful mountain for me to get to the top and finally see really, I guess myself, the myself that I should see and not the myself that I let others tell me exists. And that's not always easy. It's incredibly difficult. In terms of the podcast and what's coming up, what's coming up is my book release, which will be in September. So I'm going to spend a lot of time focusing on that. The podcast won't be all about the book release. I'm going to have guests on. My guests will be very specific to what I'm doing now. So I want to have shenanigans ladies on. I was on their podcast and they both, they're just wonderful human beings. Definitely people that are into helping others. <laughs> I want to have Jen on who started The Other Girl. And we can talk a lot about the tragedies and traumas in her life that led her to where she is today and, and what she's doing and why. Someday, I think I would love to have Skylar on. I live in a small town and so many people involved in my addiction story live here as well. And it's sometimes difficult to tell your story without telling other people's stories. And it's not my place to tell other people's stories. You know, if Roy lived in town, his podcast would be a lot different because he'd be right here. He doesn't, he's far away. 
and separate completely out of my life. I feel that I have the right to talk freely about him. Also, everything I've talked about, you can Google and find in a newspaper article or whatever. And that situation, the Roy situation, the Robin situation, the Lenora situation, the Stephanie situation, all of these people in my life, if I could go back to when they were kind, if I could go back to how it was in the beginning of those relationships, Amy would fall in this, in this category as well. I loved them at that time. These were good people. That's how I felt. They showed me the goodness in them. And I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. I read a quote today that said, you met your narcissist the way they treated you the week you left. That's how they were when you met them. You never would have been with them. And that's the truest thing ever. That's another comment that comes to mind right now. And this came from Carolina. And it's why children forgive their parents for beating the shit out of them. Because they love their parents and all they want to do, we're hardwired to love our parents because they're our protector. And especially our mothers, because they grew inside of us and we have that physical connection. Children just ache to please their parents. And so they'll put up with horrible things and do everything they can to fix it so that they get their parents loved. And so I think back to my childhood and how I was at that young, young age, and I owned all of it, burning my pajamas and keeping my room super clean and whatever things I thought I needed to change so that it wouldn't happen to me again. You know, and then of course it happens again. So what did I do wrong this time? Never once did it cross my mind at age eight that, that my abuser was the problem, right? But you don't, you're little. You want those in your life to love you. So anyway, this isn't a super long podcast. I'm not giving you any big nuggets of information. I'm trying to share with you what it's like to be an addict. And that's a hard word to use on myself. And my judges out there will run with it, I'm sure. She admitted she's an addict. Okay, well, I think we're all addicts on some level. But the path to recovery is painful and tedious and long. And quite honestly, it's forever. There are people that have been sober 30 years and still say they're in recovery because they're living in a state of recovery as opposed to a state of alcoholism. We're a very get better and get back to normal kind of life. All the COVID gobbledygook about getting life back to normal. There's no back to normal. Things change. COVID came. So that before COVID normal doesn't exist anymore. And while we are living the lives we once lived in terms of going out and being social, COVID remains a thread in our, in our culture. There are still people fighting about the reasons behind it and was it a setup and a manipulative tool and all of that. So Skylar, you're a hero to me. I hope that someday you'll share your whole story with me, but you certainly don't have to because it's your story, not mine. I need to shout out to Carolina. She's just an amazing piece of what's making it work for me right now. And my mission is to have a good Molly B Foundation. And she's incredible at tying it all back into that. That don't let your desire to hate yourself and to prove yourself right that you suck get in the way of doing amazing things for Molly. She also gives me tasks to do around that. I love that about her because I have little homework assignments that are all centered around things that will really push the Molly B Foundation to a place where it matters and where it can survive without me, where I'm not collecting shoes and old clothing to raise money, where I can have events that support the foundation. I will say when my book comes out, this particular book, any profit made will go to the Molly B Foundation. This book is about her and forever and always, I want money from the sales of the book to go to the foundation. So hopefully a few people buy it, right? And read it. That's my hope. Anyway, that's my podcast for today. It will, it will air on July 25th. Happy July 25th, everybody. My birthday is in four days, 29th. I'll be at a CrossFit competition that day on my 60th day of living, finishing my sixth decade, entering my seventh. That's a little alarming. <laughs> we always think when we're, when we're in our 50s that we're in our fifth decade, but we're not. 
Zero to 10 is our first decade. Our teens is our second. Our 20s is our third. When you get to 30, you've completed it. So here I am now. So I'm actually completing my 60th year when I finally turn 60. I'm anxious about it. It's the first time I haven't liked the age I'm turning. I didn't mind turning 40 or 50. It was okay with me. This is a little bit alarming. (laughs) So that's that. So if you all have addicts in your life, which you do, you will all have grievers and trauma survivors in your life, which you do. If you all have domestic violence survivors, and that's a broad term in your life, which you do, take a step back, even if you can't be helpful, take a step back and get kind things for them. And find a book or read it or something that will educate you on, on the nature of these things. That goes a long way in helping people. That's my little one piece of advice. So anyway, be good to yourself. Be good to yourself. Be good to yourself. Always. And be good to others. And in the words of Bill Hobrick Jr., have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444. On Facebook is Barb Higgins and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.